Hello and welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 76th episode, our returning guest is Robert Dunham. You first heard Robert Dunham on episode 59 of the podcast. Robert Dunham is an attorney and nationally recognized expert on the death penalty. Before becoming the Death Penalty Information Center's executive director, he was one of the leading capital appellate lawyers in Pennsylvania, arguing on behalf of the Commonwealth's death row inmates in its state and federal courts and in the United States Supreme Court. He served as executive director of the former Pennsylvania Capital Case Resource Center from 1994 to 1999, director of training of the Capital Habeas Unit of the Philadelphia Federal Defender's Office from 1999 to 2009, and as an assistant federal defender in the Harrisburg Federal Defender's Capital Habeas Unit from 2009 until March 2015. He started his legal career as a litigation associate at Schneider, Harrison, Siegel, and Lewis in Philadelphia, where he handled his first pro bono capital case. He previously served five years as a legislative assistant to State Representative Robert W. O'Donnell, later the Speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. He has taught in death penalty training programs offered by national, state, and local courts, bar associations, and professional organizations for more than 20 years. He was an adjunct professor of law at Villanova Law School for 11 years, teaching death penalty law, and he has also taught death penalty at Temple Law School and as a visiting scholar at Oklahoma State University. He is a life fellow of the American Bar Foundation and has served on the steering committee of the American Bar Association's Death Penalty Representative Representation Project and on the Board of Directors of the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, the Pennsylvania Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and the Philadelphia Crime Victim Assistance Program, Northwest Victim Services, for whom he has also served as board president. A native of Philadelphia, he received his undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania, where he was a university scholar in philosophy. He received his law degree from the Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C., where he served as managing editor of the Georgetown Law Journal. At Georgetown, he received the Milton A. Kaufman Prize for Outstanding Contribution to the Journal and the Jeffrey Crandall Award for Commitment to Public Interest Law. And now on to the show. I was uh, perusing your uh, your Twitter before we were talking here, and uh, I was particularly interested in a study that you guys just did about, uh, it was kind of a state-by-state look at when states abolished the death penalty, and you kind of compared the aftermath of, of each of each state. Um, can you talk a little bit about that study and, and kind of what you found? We did a study. We, we were interested in what happened to states once the uh, death penalty was repealed. Uh, And there were a couple things that that we were interested in. First, we didn't know the answer to these questions. We just wanted to find out what what it was going to be. And the first question uh, was, is there going to be a parade of horribles? Uh, Because if the death penalty is a deterrent, uh, there are certain things we would expect to see. Um, In general, uh, you might expect to see higher um, murder rates in states that don't have the death penalty uh, than states that do. Um, And if there were increases in national, uh, if if there's an an increase in murders nationwide, uh, you would expect if there was a deterrent effect that there would be a greater increase in the number of murders, uh, or in in the murder rate, rather, uh, in the non-death penalty states than in the death penalty states. And when murder rates were dropping nationwide, you would expect to see that there would be more uh, of a drop uh, in states that had the death penalty than states that didn't. We're also interested in in looking at what would happen uh, in what we call the transitional states, that is the states that at some point uh, during the last 20 years, uh, and actually it's it's all since uh, since 2004, uh, abolished the death penalty. Uh, what we would expect to see if the death penalty were a deterrent uh, is that murder rates would rise uh, in those states, uh, or at least would rise in proportion to the murder rates uh, in um, in the death penalty states, uh, and um, and maybe 
because there was a period of adjustment, uh, they would rise in comparison to the, uh, the states that had long abolished death penalty. Mm-hmm. None of that happened. Mm. None of that happened. Um, what we saw is that national trends are national trends. Mm-hmm. Uh, that um, the death penalty has nothing to do with murder rates. Mm-hmm. Um, murder rates may have something to do with whether there's a death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so murder rates may drive death sentencing, but the death penalty does not have an effect on murder rates. Mm-hmm. Um, where uh, When national trends were going up, states that abolished the death penalty um, had murder rates going up, states that were going to abolish the death penalty had murder rates going up, and states that had the death penalty had murder rates going up. And they were going up roughly proportionally. Mm. And the same thing coming down. Mm-hmm. Another thing that we were interested in, um, because uh, it has often been said by death penalty proponents that the death penalty is necessary to protect law enforcement. Uh, And so we wanted to check to see uh, if the rates at which police officers were killed and also the percentage of homicides that involved police officers, um, uh, we we wanted to see if they were affected by having a death penalty. Again, the, the first theory is that if you've got the death penalty and it's a deterrent, if it's necessary uh, to protect officers, mm-hmm. uh, then um, you would have higher rates of killing police officers in states that don't have the death penalty mm-hmm. uh, and lower rates of killing police officers in states that have the death penalty and increases in the rates of killing police officers when states abolish the death penalty. Mm. None of that happened. Mm. Uh, Another thing that we would have expected to see is that if it were more necessary, if, if if the death penalty contributed in any special way to the protection of police officers, then um, more so than the protection of the rest of society, then you would expect to see the number of police killings as a percentage of homicides overall to be lower uh, in the states that had the death penalty. That wasn't the case either. Now, we did see some some very interesting things. Murder rates historically are higher in states that have the death penalty than states that don't. Murder rates against police officers tend to be higher uh, in death penalty states as well. The proportion at which police officers are killed is about the same in states that have the death penalty and states that don't. But what we discovered was the proportion of uh, murders that involved killings of police officers was much lower in the states that ultimately abolished the death penalty. What that tells us is that the death penalty has no measurable contribution one way or another uh, with respect to the rate at which police officers are killed, the percentage of uh, killings that involve police officers, or murders generally. But the rate at which police officers are killed and the percentages of killings that involve police officers as victims has a huge impact on whether the death penalty is repealed. Hmm. And that's because there is an outsized political influence. Mm -hmm. When you hear politicians talking about expanding the death penalty, expanding the federal death penalty, Mm -hmm. um, when you see politicians talking about trying to bring back the death penalty in states that have abolished it, you frequently see them talking about it in terms of the killings of police officers. Mm -hmm. And so we know that it has 
a very strong political component. Mm -hmm. And this data just seems to prove that. If there are very few police killings, and especially when the police killings are a tiny percentage, an even tinier percentage of the number of murders overall, there is less political opposition to other efforts to repeal the death penalty. Hmm. So, you know, we didn't know what we were going to find. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we found substantiates what everybody thought all along, mm -hmm. uh, which is that the death penalty has no measurable contribution to reducing murder rates mm. and does not provide any extra layer of protection for police. Mm -hmm. um, we simply found that when there are more police killings and when there are more killings in general, uh, states are more likely to have the death penalty. Right, right. Now, why was the, what was the reason that you wanted to look at this? Were there other studies around this that just weren't as comprehensive? Or, or was this just a feeling you had that you, you said you didn't know what you were going to find, but have other studies corroborated what, what you found in this study? Um, no, one, no one has taken a comprehensive look at it. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and I think that people need to take a more comprehensive look at it than we have. Mm. But um, with the public attention that was being focused on possibly expanding the federal death penalty to include um, the killing of police officers, making that a federal capital offense. Hmm. Uh, and with the events in Delaware after the, um, after the court in Delaware declared the statute unconstitutional uh, and emptied uh, the state's death row, uh, there had been the killing of a corrections uh, officer uh, and the killing of a police officer, uh, and there were cries to, um, to bring back the death penalty. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to see what the overall uh, information looked like, uh, not just in Delaware, but nationwide. Uh, and for purposes of, of examining Delaware, it's important to try to take a look at what happened in the other states mm. uh, that had abolished death penalty, because um, we could see general trends, we could see general differences in the numbers in states that had the death penalty and states that didn't. But that might tell us more about those states than it did about the role of the death penalty in affecting murder rates. Mm. Uh, so it was important to break them, uh, break the states up into three categories. Mm -hmm states that always had the death penalty, the states that haven't had the death penalty for a long time, and the transitional states uh, that went from having it to not having it. Mm -hmm. And and those uh, those categories had pronounced differences. Mm -hmm. uh, and essentially what it comes down to is there is no parade of horribles that happens when a state abolishes the death penalty. Murder rates don't rise. Uh, police officers uh, are not uh, instantly targets. They don't become uh, suddenly targets uh, where they weren't targets before. There is no open season uh, on police officers. Uh, and that was, uh, that was an important thing to try to figure out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I've also kind of looked at, at your work here but lately. Uh, you've definitely looked at what specific states have been doing about the death penalty on the state level. Um, can you tell us what's happening with California and Prop 66? I'm not familiar with all that situation. Well, in 2012, death penalty opponents tried to abolish the death penalty, and they put a proposition on the ballot, which is Proposition 34, mm -hmm. uh, which narrowly failed. Uh, in 2016, um, they tried again, uh, and at the time that they um, put an abolitionist uh, referendum on the ballot, which is Proposition 62, death penalty proponents came up with an alternative, uh, and uh, that was Proposition 66, which they said was designed to speed up the death penalty uh, to expedite executions uh, because if the death penalty wasn't working, um, th they felt the problem was appellate delays, uh, and so um, they came up with this proposal. Uh, the, the core 
the core uh, portion of the proposal was they would create five-year uh, time limit uh, on adjudicating uh, capital post-conviction appeals. Uh, that is uh, the, the period in which you, um, you uh, after the after the, the case results in the death verdict, uh, there's a direct appeal, uh, and then there's a stage called the post-conviction uh, appeal, uh, where you raise new evidence, you do new investigations, uh, and uh, you present claims that hadn't been presented before. Now, everybody agrees that California's death penalty system is broken. It was broken before Proposition 66. It remains broken today. Uh, but the mend-it-don't-end-it forces prevailed by a fraction over 1% of the vote. It was um, uh, just under 51% uh, to just over 49%. Very, very narrow victory for them, uh, and Proposition 62 to abolish the death penalty failed, I think, by eight percentage points. <laughs> so this very, very narrow victory um, was a product of numerous political um, uh, circumstances. Uh, but one thing that's absolutely clear about it is way more than 1% of the vote was swayed by uh, speeding up the appellate process uh, and by the promise that proponents of Proposition 66 made uh, that the appeals would be much faster and you could expect uh, that the appeals would be done in five years, at least in state court, uh, and then would move on to federal court. What we're seeing currently in California uh, is delays uh, of as many as 20 years uh, because the state does not have uh, a pool of lawyers who are able to and willing to handle the capital cases. They've got uh, 750 approximately uh, people on death row. More than half of them are waiting for lawyers uh, to handle their cases. Uh, and even if the California Supreme Court were to decide a case a week uh, for many, many years, they wouldn't clear the backlog. Mm -hmm. So objective observers thought that there was no way that Proposition 66 could possibly do what it says it, it what it claimed it would do. Mm -hmm. And as soon as it passed, uh, opponents of the proposition filed a taxpayer suit, uh, arguing that a number of things that it did violated the California Constitution and the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> the Supreme Court of California decided the case um, last week. And uh, it mostly upheld Proposition 66. One challenge was that uh, there's a technical problem with the proposition. California's Constitution says you can only include one topic at a time in a proposition, and this affected where people were being put on death row, who was going to be allowed to handle uh, death penalty representation, what court was going to be hearing the cases, would there be public comment or not uh, on the question of lethal injection, uh, how much time would people have to file their claims, uh, what claims would they be allowed to file, and how much time would the courts have to adjudicate the claims. So the opponents of Proposition 66 said that's not a single topic, uh, and they challenged it based on California's Constitution. The California Supreme Court said, no, that's not true. Um, we need to have the flexibility to address comprehensive reform, and all of these things are related to the general topic of the death penalty system. So they upheld Proposition 66 against that challenge. Hmm. There's also a challenge uh, against uh, moving the case, uh, moving the cases from the California Supreme Court to the trial court to handle the uh, the initial uh, post-conviction appeals, mm -hmm. uh, and that raised questions of uh, California. California's constitution uh, and who has jurisdiction, uh, the California Supreme Court said that's okay. Uh, that change is a technical change. We're going to allow it to happen. Then we had the major changes dealing with how much time prisoners have to investigate and file their claims, how much time they have to 
file petitions and how much time the courts have to adjudicate the petitions. That's the core. That's the central proposition, uh, the central feature of Proposition 66. And the California Supreme Court said, well, the proposition says five years, but that's not mandatory. I know it uses the word shall, and in normal language, shall means mandatory, but shall doesn't mean mandatory here. Uh, We say that shall means uh, this is the sense that uh, the voters have. They want the cases to be uh, decided in that time. We're going to say it is directory, not mandatory. Uh, it is advisory. Uh, and courts retain the power in every case to decide on a case-by-case basis how much time is necessary to have an evidentiary hearing, to permit amendments, uh, to decide the case. Uh, And so, basically, they upheld the proposition against the constitutional challenge, but they gutted it. Uh, And um, now some observers who... um, were involved in prior studies in California. Uh, The uh, executive director of the 2008 commission that thoroughly analyzed uh, California's death penalty, uh, now they're saying that the Proposition 66 changes might actually increase the delays rather than decrease them. So that's the story out of California. Uh, Executions aren't expected anytime soon. Uh, The state still does not have uh, an execution protocol, but there are 18 people who could be subject to death warrants as soon as there is a protocol. Mm. Uh, And um, that's where we stand. Wow. Okay. And you were kind of talking about moving the process along. Was was that concerns about, you know, uh, due process and speedy trial and all that kind of stuff? Was that their argument to, to to move it along and not have people sit on death row for quite as long? Or was that their view? Not so much speedy trial, Mm -hmm. uh, because they're they're worried about the delays that happen once a death sentence is imposed. I see. Okay. Uh, But their their concern was um, the amount of time it takes once a death penalty is imposed Mm -hmm. until the death penalty is carried out. I see. California has sentenced more than 900 people to death, uh, and it has um, executed, I think, 13 or 16 people. I don't, I don't remember which number it is, but it's wow. a tiny number compared to the number who've been sentenced to death. Uh, and um, the single most likely uh, situation for someone who is sentenced to death in California is that they are still sitting on death row waiting for their appeals to be decided. Mm. Uh, but the fact is nationwide that the passage of time in adjudicating these cases is critical because it often takes 20 years or more before somebody is exonerated. Mm. Uh, And when you curtail the appeals process, uh, the most likely outcome of that is that constitutional errors uh, are never discovered because you don't have the opportunity to meaningfully investigate them and meaningfully present them to the court. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the ultimate beneficiary of a curtailed appellate process uh, are police and prosecutors who are committing abuses because the types of issues that don't get investigated and don't get presented and don't get adjudicated in a curtailed appellate process uh, are the case, are the issues that take the longest to develop mm-hmm. and those are police and prosecutorial misconduct right. those are issues where the state actors have an incentive to try to prevent the facts from ever coming to light mm-hmm. well I mean they're at that point they're trying to prove a case more than they're trying to get to the facts of the matter because you know they're really just trying to put another win on the scoreboard for themselves, and it's not going to do for them to try to, you know, I've heard the term bad evidence before, um, and that, you know, kind of speaks to how, you know, they built their cases. It's not necessarily 
like what is what is the actual truth of the matter it's it's more about can we make our case so it's it's very prosecutorial based uh it, it's uh, I, uh, by that i mean whether you have a death penalty or don't have a death penalty mm-hmm. in a particular county uh is largely dependent upon the whims of the local prosecutor. You, you have, uh, for example, Riverside County, which has uh, the second highest number of death sentences uh, in the United States over the last five years, uh, and I think now uh, uh, ranks second or third in the U.S. overall in the number of people who've been sentenced to death. Uh, but its death sentencing rate far exceeds its murder rate. Uh, the, the number of death sentences per murder in Riverside County uh, is more than double, I believe, the average in California. So um, whether you have a death penalty that's aggressively pursued is not related to the murder rate. It's related to the psychological makeup and the political benefits that the uh, prosecutor in that county has. Um, You know, we've looked at the death penalty across the United States, and we found that, we did a study in 2013 uh, that showed that 2% of the counties in the United States are responsible for more than half of all the death sentences in the entire country. Wow. Uh, and most of the counties in the United States don't have anybody on death row at all. Mm. Uh, that tells us that even though the death penalty is on the books in 31 states, it isn't really practiced in most of the counties. Mm. It's practiced by a very few number of counties, and they disproportionately seek the death penalty. They seek it out of size to their population. They seek it out of size to the number of murders in their jurisdiction and out of size to the murder rates in their jurisdiction as compared to murder rates elsewhere within their state. And when we track the changes in death sentencing in these outlier counties, what we see is big changes occur not when murder rates drop. I mean, there are changes in in death sentencing rates when murder rates drop. But the big changes, when they occur, it's because there's been a new prosecutorial administration. So you have a change of personality at the top, and the policy about when you pursue the death penalty changes. Right, and I've also heard that there uh, counties a lot of times won't do that just simply for the cost of, of making a capital case. I've heard a million dollars is their going rate. Uh, I, I could be wrong, but that's you know, there's there's a sunken cost uh, to to trying to pr- even pursue a death penalty case. So is that is that part of the reason why so few counties do that? That is part of the reason, and um, there are, there are going to be some studies coming out in the fall uh, that um, that have looked at this. Uh, and I, I don't want to steal uh, anybody else's thunder, uh, but um, uh, we've been given a preview of, uh, uh, of a couple of the studies. Uh, and um, what we're going to see is that the death penalty nationwide seems to be disappearing from rural areas. Uh, part of that is, uh, is certainly because of the cost. Uh, and uh, poor counties, uh, there have been instances uh, in which uh, rural counties have had to raise taxes to pay for the cost of capital prosecution. Mm. Uh, and uh, the county commissioners are not happy about that. Uh, the taxpayers are not happy about that. And uh, rural prosecutors have gotten that message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, switching gears a little bit, last time we talked about the racial component to the death penalty, um, this falling particularly hard on, on minorities. And I thought it was an interesting case uh, that came up in Florida here. Uh, Mark Assay, I think is how you say his last name. Yeah. Apparently the first white inmate in the whole state, I didn't know this, uh, to be convicted or uh, to be uh, sentenced to death for killing a 
black person in the state's history. Never happened before. Um, you know, right there, I think that says a lot about how we actually carry out the death penalty in this country if we're in 2017, and this is the first time this is ever happening in the state of Florida. It's the first time Florida has ever executed a white man for killing any black man. Right, yeah. Uh, now, there have been 59 white men, uh, I'm sorry, 59 um, white prisoners executed in Florida. Mm. Um, every single one of them, including Mark Assay, had killed at least one white person or a Latino person. Mm. So they still have not executed anybody for killing only a black person. Wow. Uh, and um, I'm sorry, I said 59, I, I meant 57. Um, there are 28 African Americans who have been executed in Florida in, in the modern history of the death penalty. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically half as many uh, black people have been executed as, as white people. Mm. Uh, but in those cases, in 20 of the 28, the black person had been convicted of an interracial murder involving a white victim. Mm. So 70% of the African Americans who were executed had killed at least one white person. Mm. And fewer than 2%, only one person in the entire history mm. of Florida's death penalty, um, one white person had never been executed for killing even one um, black person. Wow. Uh, the, the numbers get uh, get even more interesting when you uh, when you go into them uh, in more detail. I don't have them uh, in front of me, so I'll just tell you a couple of things sort of from memory. Uh, and that is when I looked at the numbers, um, many of the African Americans who were executed uh, were executed for killing a single white person. Uh, Fifteen of the twenty-eight had killed a single white person. Um, no white defendant has ever been executed for a homicide that involved a single victim and that single victim was black. Mm. Wow. That's staggering. Um, yeah, and another reason I thought that Florida case was interesting is they had apparently used a new drug uh, that apparently wasn't even meant for executions. It was just meant for sedation, right? I mean, that wasn't even what it was meant for initially. Um, and, you know, this was, uh, obviously we talked about this before, but the, the drug companies have uh, kind of dried up as far as providing these drugs to these companies. Um, basically, it just seems like we're doing human experimentation in real time. Like, it doesn't even seem like they know exactly what these drugs are going to do. Can you speak a little bit to the specifics of that case and kind of a larger sense of, of how we're going about this? Sure. The drug that, um, that Florida used, they used a three-drug combination, mm. uh, and the three-drug combination is typically uh, some kind of um, uh, anesthetic followed by a paralytic agent followed by um, the drug that stops the heart. Mm -hmm. And everybody agrees that if you didn't have the anesthetic, uh, it would be a torturous death. Mm -hmm. uh, because when you inject somebody with potassium chloride, uh, as most states do, or potassium acetate, as, uh, as Florida did here, um, you are literally um, chemically burning them to death. Uh, when, uh, w when Florida botched an execution uh, several years ago, uh, there was a case in which they failed to inject the drug uh, into the prisoner's veins, uh, and they ended up injecting it into the surrounding tissue. Mm -hmm. uh, the autopsy showed major chemical burns uh, for essentially the length of the prisoner's arm. Mm. Uh, and um, that graphically illustrated what this chemical does to the body. Um, you would be experiencing searing, burning pain mm -hmm. um, until the drug reached the heart and induced a heart attack. Mm. Um, the anesthetic is critical then to um, to make sure that the person isn't conscious while they're being burned alive. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And the second drug, the paralytic agent, doesn't do anything to advance the physiological process that leads to the execution. Um, what it does is um, it paralyzes the prisoner uh, so that the execution is more palatable to the observers. Uh, it's, it's been described as being used for the dignity of the prisoner so you don't see uh, him or her flopping about, flailing and writhing in pain. Uh, but uh, it simply masks the physiological effect, and it makes it impossible uh, to determine in most instances um, whether the prisoner is conscious and experiencing uh, the searing pain before uh, he or she dies. The question then is, does the first drug work? And Florida uh, and many of the other states had been using sodium thiopental or pentobarbital, uh, and that as an anesthetic would put the prisoner out uh, and they would be executed. Uh, the drug companies have, for the, for the most part, um, eliminated sodium thiopental as an option. Uh, some states still are carrying out executions uh, with pentobarbital. Georgia does that, Texas does that, uh, Missouri does that. Um, Florida doesn't have pentobarbital, uh, and Florida was using midazolam, uh, which was a drug that uh, does not work properly mm-hmm. and was implicated in botched executions in at least four states oh, yeah. and questionable executions in others. Mm-hmm. So they moved off of midazolam. Mm-hmm. Because of secrecy, we don't know if they did that for good reasons. Uh, or they did it because they couldn't get it. They then got a generic version of the drug, uh, Etomidate. Uh, And that drug was created by Janssen Pharmaceuticals, a division of Johnson & Johnson, 50 years ago. And it was created exclusively for medical purposes. Uh, Johnson & Johnson no longer uh, is involved in the sale of the drug. So... Their statement against Florida's use of the drug is striking because they don't have a direct financial interest in it, but they have an interest in the legacy of uh, their um, uh, their drug. Uh, and they said that their medicine is a medicine. It was designed to save lives and to promote health, it was not designed to kill prisoners. And they do not, they said, uh, we do not condone its use mm-hmm. in executions. Right. So that was that was a striking statement mm-hmm. um, by the world's largest pharmaceutical manufacturer. Uh, and uh, it comes in line with um, similar uh, things, similar statements from Pfizer uh, and a lawsuit filed by McKesson uh, 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 Medical uh, against Arkansas uh, when Arkansas obtained the drugs for executions under false pretenses. Now, with the Atomidate, it's used in general anesthesia. Um, It was not designed for use in executions. It's not approved for use in executions. There is no approved. uh, Killing prisoners has never been an approved medical purpose. Um, And it's experimental. And nobody knows um, uh, what to expect. Um, And unfortunately, from... uh, from a policy standpoint, we can't tell whether it did the job it was supposed to do or not mm-hmm. because uh, Mark Assay uh, was also injected with a paralytic agent, uh, and so we can't tell from his physiological response uh, whether he was aware of being chemically burned to death. Right. Well, and that's, like you said, it's kind of, it's not actually for the prisoners. It's, it's for our benefit, so we don't know and can't see it. You know, it's not really for the benefit of the person being executed. But um, as far as these drug companies, I, I, I agree with you. It is striking to see these uh, companies coming out against this, especially since um, you want to go back to the, you mentioned midazolam. I remember that was a controversy a few years ago when they, uh, I believe it was an Italian company named Hospira, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, who uh, said uh, they found out that their drugs were being used for these executions and they took a stand. But that was a, you know, a European company, but it, it is, a, I think, a shift to see these American 
American companies starting to be, you know, whoa, what are what is this being used for? So I do think there's a, maybe a corporate culture shift. I mean, I mentioned, uh, or I looked at your uh, newsletter and I saw that um, the Merck CEO, uh, Ken Frazier, who uh, I recognize his name, of course, because he just quit that uh, president's council after Charlottesville. But, um, you know, he took a stand on that, too. So are, are you seeing a corporate American response to this? It sounds like it's, it's a turning point of some sort. Well, I think the turning point is the public awareness of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, for for a long time, um, the pharmaceutical manufacturers have um, have been against the use of their medicines um, for any non medical purpose. Uh, and as I said earlier, um, you know, killing prisoners has never been an approved medical purpose. Mm-hmm. So so they've always been against that. Uh, but what's striking is they're speaking out. Mm-hmm. Every major pharmaceutical company in the United States um, that produces any medicine that any state has ever used in an execution has now adopted policies against the sale of its medicines to state prisons for use in executions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they are each adopting distribution practices. These are controlled substances, so they've got to track where they go. Uh, And they are instituting uh, distribution practices uh, to more closely track what's happening, to to try to prevent the drugs from going to states uh, and then being used in executions. What we what we think has happened in states like Arkansas uh, and states like Florida, uh, and and perhaps also in Ohio, is that one um, state institution, one branch of the state government, obtains the medicine, um, and the drug manufacturers and drug distributors think it's being sold for a legitimate medical purpose. And then once it's in the possession of the state, they transfer possession to the prisons uh, for use in executions. So it's a kind of bait and switch. Uh, It's being sold for a medical purpose, uh, and then uh, it's being um, uh, turned over uh, from some uh, some group that bought it ostensibly for medical purpose to the prison uh, to be used mm-hmm. in, in killing the prisoners. Right, and I saw on your uh, your Twitter here we had something about the, these, these states are just buying this like straight cash, like straight under the table cash because they can't literally can't get these drugs anywhere because no one wants to sell them. Um, so it's it's kind of creating this underground black market where the states themselves are now. You know, we always think about black market drugs and think of some somebody living in like a heroin den or something, but this is this is like the state, you know, and they won't even tell you what they're using half the time. You mentioned Arkansas. They kept that secret, did they not? Uh, they they kept uh, they didn't keep the, the drug they were using secret, mm-hmm. but they kept secret who they were getting it from. Uh, <laughs> that should and, tell you something. Uh, <laughs> like it's, it's not right, you know. So well, there's yeah. you know the Washington Post has its new uh, slogan: uh, "Democracy dies in darkness." Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, there is a premium in a representative democracy on open government. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justice Louis Brandeis once said, uh, the popularized version of his expression is that sunshine is the best disinfectant. Yep. Uh, open government is necessary. Uh, uh, information is necessary for open government. If we're going to have public oversight and public accountability, we can't have secrets on important state policies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if the death penalty can only be carried out behind a veil of secrecy, that may tell us something Mm -hmm. about its moral status in contemporary values. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Um, another issue that you've, you've brought up that I think is so important is the jury side of this. If you want to go back to the trials, um, you know, there's a couple of issues. You know, there's, there's first of all jury nullification that I've heard about, uh, where you basically just use the power of the jury to kind of fight back against uh, prosecutors going for the death penalty. But then on the other side of it, that's harder to do and things like that because you can't even make it onto a jury if you're fundamentally against the death penalty in a capital case in a lot of places or everywhere, right? That's right. Um, there's, a, there's a constitutional rule that says you're entitled to 
an unbiased, a fair and unbiased jury. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that's a rule that was created. It's a constitutional rule, so it's a right that a defendant has. Um, It's not a right that the state has, although uh, no one is going to say that we should have unfair trials, um, trials that are unfair to the state. But the state has no constitutional right uh, to... um, uh, to exclude jurors, that's uh, that, that's a privilege that the state is given. But defendants have a right not to have biased jurors against them. Well, what would develop as a result of that uh, is that um, defendants have a right not to have jurors who would automatically impose the death penalty. Um, that juror is not capable of following his or her oath uh, and following the law. But it is also the case that a juror who will not consider the death penalty is not following um, the oath. Uh, And so this process developed called death qualification that's designed to exclude both jurors who cannot impose the death penalty, and jurors who cannot consider a life sentence. Hmm. That's all well and good from a theoretical perspective. But in reality, what happens is that when you ask somebody whether they um, are against the death penalty, they err on, on saying that they are. Mm-hmm. And when you ask somebody if they would always impose death, uh, always impose death penalty, mm-hmm. they say, "Of course not." Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are many, many people mm-hmm. who would automatically impose the death penalty for premeditated murder, mm-hmm. who would automatically impose the death penalty for, let's say, the killing of a police officer or the killing of a child or killing during the commission of a felony, all of which are aggravating circumstances. But during the course of the death qualification process, they're saying, I wouldn't automatically impose death. Um, If it's self-defense, I wouldn't impose it. If it's not classic premeditation, I wouldn't impose it. Um, And you end up with a death death qualifying process allowing a whole, not catching, a whole range of people who are substantially impaired in their ability to impose life sentences. Mm -hmm. But even more disturbingly, uh, it takes out a substantial number of uh, of jurors who could provide a fair trial mm-hmm. uh, on the question of guilt or innocence, um, but who uh, are deemed to have a substantial impairment in their ability to uh, uh, to consider imposing the death penalty. Right. The other key thing about it is uh, it's racially discriminatory. Mm. Uh, it, it's it's religiously discriminatory. It uh, it will strike you if you're a good Catholic, but not a fallen Catholic, mm-hmm. right? If you are uh, if you are a very conservative Catholic, someone like um, like uh, Justice Antonin Scalia uh, or Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, and you do not follow um, the Catholic teachings against the death penalty, uh, you survive the death qualification process. Uh, if you are an observant Catholic who follows uh, the teachings of the faith, uh, and you say you could not impose the death penalty, uh, you are excluded. Uh, so, um, when you think of judgments about the harshness of sentences uh, and uh, and whether someone is guilty of a lesser crime or a greater crime, uh, imagine being tried before a group of harsh Catholics as opposed to observant Catholics, uh, and that um, that epitomizes the difference between being tried before a death-qualified jury uh, and an ordinary jury. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, it's racially discriminatory. More Latinos, a higher percentage of Latinos and a higher percentage of African Americans are opposed to the death penalty. Uh, and they are disproportionately excluded through the death qualification process. On top of that, in death penalty cases, you get what are called peremptory challenges. Those are discretionary challenges. You get them in almost every case, uh, but you get more of them in capital cases. So um, what we've seen historically is that prosecutors exercise their discretionary strikes disproportionately against blacks and Latinos. Mm -hmm. It's unconstitutional 
to do so on the basis of race, uh, but that's an ongoing problem. But it's not unconstitutional to disproportionately strike uh, blacks and Latinos if you have a race-neutral reason for doing it. Uh, and so whether by choice uh, or whether just by the disproportionate um, use of the strikes, the combination of the peremptory challenges and the challenges for cause based on opposition to the death penalty so skews the ultimate jury panel that it doesn't come close to representing the conscience of the community. Yeah, it's like saying you have a jury of your peers, but somehow all your peers have exactly the same view on the subject, so it's kind of like, well, is this really a representative example of the people around me? Like, not really. Yeah, what it is, um, because the jury of the peers uh, is is what we're supposed to have. Uh Uh, What it is is a jury... composed solely of people who swear they're willing to cast the first stone. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Um, So uh, you you think a lot about the death penalty. Uh, What is your personal view about uh, killing in self-defense or uh, killing, you know, um, you know, in in the heat of the moment? I mean, are are you a vegetarian? You know, I I imagine you've thought about uh, murder and and things like that uh, a lot. So how does this affect your personal view and things like that? Well, you know, views about the death penalty, the, the moral uh, the, the moral statement is only the first statement. Uh, are you morally opposed to the death penalty? Uh, and um, uh, philosophically and morally, uh, that, that, that can stem from, uh, do you believe it's ever appropriate for governments to kill? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when it comes to, you know, that, that, that raises questions of war, um, it raises questions of, uh, of, of use of force uh, by police um, and so forth. Uh, I, I think that the Second World War had to be fought. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a problem with, uh, with, with somebody defending themselves legitimately uh, from uh, an imminent threat by somebody else. Um, the the question then becomes: um, Is it uh, are, are there are there ever circumstances in which it is appropriate for the government to take the life of somebody once they have been incapacitated, they've been caught, uh, and they've been uh, and, and they put in jail? Mm-hmm. The Death Penalty Information Center doesn't take a position for or against the death penalty itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was called for a capital jury uh, in Philadelphia in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll remember it because I was called on my birthday. Oh, wow. Uh, so I, so I, went, I went to show up, and um, I was in private practice at the time. I wasn't mm-hmm. yet full-time representing uh, people who were on death row. Uh, but I had a death penalty case that I was handling pro bono at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, and, um, uh, and my view at the time was that... Um, if we're going to have the death penalty, we need to make sure that it's done fairly uh, and and uh, and applied uh, evenly and non and in a non discriminatory way. Mm-hmm. Well, I was struck from the jury, um, not because of my views about the death penalty. I. I accurately uh, said, I I truthfully said, that I could impose the death penalty in an appropriate circumstance. Um, Although, uh, uh, what constitutes an appropriate circumstance, uh, they never asked me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, I was struck uh, from the jury, uh, and I learned later on that I was struck because they didn't ask me a whole bunch of critical questions. Mm-hmm. The questions they asked me would have, I think, generally made me uh, a good juror for the prosecution. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you ever the victim of a crime? Yes. Were you ever the victim of a crime involving uh, a weapon? Yes. Um, has anyone you've ever known been a victim of a crime? Yes. Has anyone in your family uh, or close to you ever been murdered? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of questions that I answered. Answered uh, that um, uh, 
that would have, uh, you think, made me a good prosecution juror. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was struck peremptorily, a discretionary choice, um, by the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was only years later when I became involved in capital representation that I understood that I had been racially targeted. Mm. I'd been a victim of racial profiling uh, because the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office had a practice of um, uh, of striking jurors based on what neighborhoods they were from. Wow. Uh, and black jurors were struck with twice the frequency of any other juror. Uh, but among white jurors, uh, you were twice as likely to be struck if you grew up in an integrated neighborhood, which I did, um, as opposed to those who lived in highly segregated white neighborhoods. Uh, and so once they knew that I was from uh, a neighborhood, Mount Airy, uh, which is now Actually known uh, as an integrated neighborhood, um, they didn't need, they, they didn't need to know anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but on, on your on your general question, um, you don't ha- uh, obviously if you're morally opposed to government taking any life, um, then you would oppose the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you aren't morally opposed to that. Um, you then look at the death penalty as a policy, and does it survive um, the test of a good public policy? Uh, is it applied fairly? Uh, is it applied um, evenly from county to county, state to state? Um, is it applied uh, consistently based on the race of the victim, the race of the defendant? Uh, does it avoid economic discrimination? Uh, and when you ask those questions, the death penalty fails every single one of those. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a problem. Uh, and uh, do we get it right? Well, the single most likely outcome of a capital case is that the conviction or death sentence is going to be overturned. So um, the odds are we don't get it right. Uh, and do we get it very, very wrong? Um, well, 159 people have been exonerated so far. Yeah. That's one exoneration for every nine executions. Um, if planes crashed with that frequency, we would be changing our aviation policy in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, I totally agree. Um, well, we're getting near the hour mark, and I do appreciate you taking so much time to talk to me again. This is definitely something that I'll continue to have questions about, but is there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to get in there before we go? No, I, just, I think that, you know, we are... Uh, I've used the analogy of climate change. Mm-hmm. We're in the midst of climate change on the death penalty in the United States. Yeah. Uh, from, the, uh, from the 80s, uh, when there was overwhelming support for it, uh, to last year when support was at an all-time low. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know um, whether under the new administration, uh, Americans' views are hardening uh, and they're becoming more fearful. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll likely see that in, in some of the polls that, that, uh, that come out. Uh, but, um, but what we've seen so far this year is that while execution rates are up Minimally, uh, there is no major change uh, in executions, uh, and death sentencing rates, um, death sentences are slightly higher than last year's record low, uh, but they are still near um, near the all-time records. Uh, so it appears that uh, there is no uh, seismic shift in public views about the death penalty uh, that's occurred uh, as a result of the November election, and in fact, more and more local prosecutors are being elected who are saying that they don't want to use the death penalty. So I think that the long-term trend is still pretty stable, uh, and we are still moving as a nation away from the death penalty, not towards it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for everything you do, and I hope to talk to you again, and I hope you have a good rest of your day here. My pleasure. You too. Great. Thanks. Bye. Sure.
you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.